ಓಂ ಜ್ಞಾನಚಿರಂಧ್ಯಾನಂಜನ ಶ್ಲಾಕಯ ಚಕ್ಷುರ್ಮಿಲಿತಂಗೇನ ತಸ್ಮೈ ಶ್ರೀ ಗುರುವೇ ನಮಃ our human life is wasted just like if we come to this steel plant you're all working here in the steel plant you got service in the steel plant because you're qualified you know how to do the job i don't i couldn't get a job in the steel plant it requires some training one has to understand what are the functions of the different machines uh if one if one is expert enough to operate them and then he can fulfill the function of the steel plant in a broader manner we should know what is the function what is the proper function of human life what is the purpose just like if we see a, a big factory is set up a big steel mill or any other there's so many different kinds of factories we have to know what the purpose is and act according to that purpose and then the purpose can be fulfilled the purpose of this steel mill is presumably to produce steel mostly steel sheets would it be mostly steel sheets we should consider similarly what is the purpose of human life now many people say that well there's no particular purpose we're just born and then we die and in between we should just do what we're doing here and don't think too much about what happens afterwards this is a foolish proposition even if spoken by apparently intelligent people there are many philosophers so called philosophers we prefer to call them philosophers because they speak big philosophy but at the end they come up with the idea that there's no purpose to life it's like a, a brilliant mathematician he might be uh brilliant apparently brilliant in theory but then he gets all his calculations wrong 1 plus 1 equals 3 so what's the use of your theoretical mathematics if the result is wrong i think in producing steel you have to be very everything has to be very precise isn't it the temperatures have to be precise the the uh, the, am- the amount of admixture of carbon has to be precise otherwise you get all you don't get what you're intending to get so it's very precise and accurate if it's not precisely to the is not just as it should be then it comes out something else which isn't desired then you find your stainless steel is rusted <laughs> not stainless so we should see uh that this whole universe it's so complex extraordinarily complex even the most simple cell in our bodies is far more complex than a big steel plant so we told now it is when i was at school i was taught that the cells are very simple 
and probably will be able to reproduce them soon. But now, after more research, they found that cells are so complex, just to understand even the most simple cell in our body, it's, uh, it's not within the present scope. It's not within the scope of present-day science. So if we see something very, some complex setup with some function, we should understand there is a purpose. Every cell in our body has a purpose. Every factory has a purpose. It has a specific purpose. The purpose of this factory is to produce steel sheets. There are different, there are so many different petrochemical factories and, and it's so many factories for producing fans, factories for producing neon lights. They're designed in a particular way with a particular purpose. And they're all quite complex. It's, it's, uh, it's not an ordinary thing to be an engineer in a, in a steel mill. One has to study for many years, going through school, and then university, uh, or technical college, getting the required education, and even then, one requires on-the-job training. So we can understand that for any complex function, it requires much intelligence to set it up, to design a steel mill, to uh, put it into, to design it. There are so many different factors, not just technological, there are also economic factors, logistic factors. There are so many different factors that have to be taken into consideration. It requires much intelligence to set up a steel mill and to keep it running. Profitably. To keep it running at all is one thing, and then to keep it running profitably. There's so many different factors. So, similarly, when we see the universe, which is incredibly complex, if we look at the microcosm, both from the microcosm to the macrocosm, it's incredibly complex. That at both levels of physics, microcosmic and macrocosmic, the uh, modern physicists, atomic physicists and cosmologists, uh, they're simply bewildered. That there are so many. Some years ago, I saw in a magazine that there are about two among astrophysicists. There are about two thousand theories as to the origin of the universe or the non-origin of the universe, because some hold the theory that there is no particular origin solid-state theories. So I considered, uh, um, actually, how many astrophysicists are there in the world? Well, there probably are more than, much more than 2,000 anyway. So, and there are about 2,000 different theories. And I, I was recently speaking with an astrophysicist who told me that, well, some of them have several theories. There are so many different theories which bring us to the conclusion that they don't know and among themselves, they'll readily admit that the mysteries of the universe are far more complex than we can really begin to comprehend. Any really knowledgeable person will admit, in whatever field of knowledge they may be studying, that we don't really know that much. It was Sir Isaac Newton who was lauded as the, in his time as the, the most uh, learned and brilliant person, and his name is written in gold letters in the annals of science as 
uh, unquestionably one of the most brilliant scientists ever to walk this planet. So he himself said that after all my life of, of walking on the beach of knowledge, I feel that I have collected just a few grains. So any really knowledgeable person will understand that the, the, to understand everything is far beyond our knowledge, but nevertheless it is a human instinct to try to find out what is going on, to try to amass knowledge, and to try to make sense of everything that we find around ourselves, which ultimately brings us to philosophy. The real important questions of life are, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? What are we doing? Simply to write it off that after death everything is finished isn't uh, philosophically very satisfying. And it also uh, neglects the fact that we are living in an incredibly complex universe which suggests that there's a purpose behind it. If we come to some factory some big factory, someone has set up a big factory and we, we walk in and we see the huge machines and it, it, it's all set up and we ask, well, actually, well, what's the function? What's this factory all about? What kind of factory is it? They say, well, it's, it doesn't really have any particular purpose, but we just put some things in these machines and then they get crushed and then that's it. There's no particular purpose to this factory. It's just a factory. That's all. But what does it produce? Well, it just produces rubber for no particular purpose. Sounds very strange. Why would anyone make a factory like that? If if we see sometimes they have in in Delhi inventor ex inventors exhibitions, and so many people show the different things they've invented. So if someone shows at that exhibition a very complex machine with pulleys and siphons and chutes and so many different things and you say, well, it looks like a very good machine, what does it do? It doesn't do anything. It just, you, you switch the button and then the pulleys start to move and the, the different parts go up and down, it doesn't really do anything. You know, what's the use of such, what's, why invent such a machine? It doesn't have any purpose. So that's a case of misused intelligence. It's completely meaningless. So in the same way, if we see the whole universe, it's so complex, uh, the first thing we should understand is that there should be some intelligence behind all this. It doesn't come into being simply by chance, as the modern, modern popular theories say, that it is come into being by chance. But even one cell, how it could come into being by chance, let alone how it reacts with so many other cells within, what to speak of a human body, even within the body of a mosquito, it's so complex. Uh, we, we laud modern scientists and technologists for making airplanes, but by the arrangement of nature there are so many airplanes which never crash, such as mosquitoes and house flies, and they, they reproduce, no need of a Boeing factory. 
they reproduce by themselves. So, uh, it is intelligent to consider that there is intelligence and purpose behind the universe. To think that it is coming to being by chance, even though uh, such theories are promulgated by apparently very intelligent people, uh, it seems that they're actually not that intelligent. It's like brilliant mathematicians who get their basic arithmetic all wrong. <laughs> they're, they're, they're brilliant in mathematical theory, but their conclusion is 1 plus 1 equals 3. So we can conclude that for all their brilliance, they, they, they've missed the basic point. So scientists who say that, who come up with theories that everything has come into being by chance, it, it doesn't tally with the with observed reality. Therefore, it's not really very scientific. That's uh, we're talking about the origin of the universe. And then, uh, and then another big question is: if everything comes into being by chance, so they said the universe came into being by chance. And life came into being by chance, which it also doesn't seem the possibility of it. First of all, we don't know, it can't be stated by modern science, how life can come into being at all simply from matter, because it's not been demonstrated that life is a product of matter. We don't agree with these theories at all. We say that. Now, life is completely independent of, of matter. Life is intrinsically a different phenomenon to, to phenomena to that of matter. Life means the presence of Atma. It is not material. Therefore, it is not simply by combining matter that life comes, that life exists. But according to evolutionary theory, Life is a product of matter and has come into being by chance. It's another very unlikely, extremely unlikely. In fact, about 30 years ago, some scientists in the University of Cardiff in Wales, uh, they came out with a paper, uh, demonstration by information theory that, uh, that life cannot arise from matter. It's, it's impossible. Or the possibility is something like 10 to the minus 10,000. It's just, it's a, it's a, and according to statistics, when you get that, when you get such a small possibility, then it's called an impossibility. So, uh, if we take as a hypothesis, even as a scientific hypothesis, that behind the universe there is an intelligent being who has created everything with a purpose. In other words, God, that, that word which is unfortunately anathema to many modern scientists. But if we take it as a hypothesis, we'll find that everything that is known to science at the present time fits very nicely into this hypothesis that there is a phenomenally intelligent person who has set everything up for a particular purpose. It makes everything that modern science has discovered 
can be accommodated within this hypothesis. It is not unscientific to accept that there is purpose within the universe, there is purpose to life, and that that purpose is to understand God. It is, it is considered unscientific to believe in God by certain persons, although there are many scientists who also accept the existence of God. But it's considered unscientific because they say, well, it can't be proved that there is God. But this is a rather unreasonable statement because if hypothetically we accept that there is God, then by his very nature he will be immeasurable. You will not, you won't be able to find it in a microscope or a telescope or any kind of scope. By his very, by the very definition of God, he is uh, immeasurable. He is a tinta beyond the scope of ordinary materialistic intellectual endeavors. By the very, de by the very definition, God is spiritual, which means not understandable by any material means. So it's unreasonable to, to say that it is unscientific to accept the existence of God. Rather, it is most scientific to accept. But we have to understand the proper scientific method. Just like, I would guess many of you are engineers here, and probably also some economists, administrators, and so on. But, uh, the engineer for a steel plant, he must have a very specific knowledge of how to do his job. There is a particular methodology of how to uh, take iron ore, smelt it, and produce uh, steel from that. It's a very specific technology. If we bring uh, another very capable engineer, but whose training is in petrochemical engineering, he won't be able to function here, because it's a different methodology. Or he could function, but he'd have to take specific training. So, we require a specific methodology in understanding every area of knowledge. One may be uh, an expert in uh, steel plant engineering, but if he is to do research into the history, for instance, of what is presently known as Tamil Nadu, then he'll have to take up a different kind of methodology altogether. To find that out, well, one thing is you go to, you, you consult the already written books, that's a very good start. If you want to start with completely fresh, then you won't get anywhere. The first thing is to accept some authority who already knows. And then if you want to do more research, then you have to find, maybe you'll find, try to find some old inscriptions uh, for more recent history. You may try to find some newspapers going back to the, the I don't know when the first Tamil newspapers were, the Hindu newspaper from Madras probably started in the early part of the 20th century, maybe even the 19th century. So you may consult all issues and books written by persons uh, on this on related subjects, 
So there's a specific methodology. The iron ore that's used for the iron that's extracted for producing steel, that's, that's absolutely essential for a steel plant. But the geologist who discovers that iron ore, uh, his methodology is a completely different one to that you use for taking that iron ore and smelting it. You do that here, you, you smell the iron ore? No. You get already, it's already prepared before it comes in. So, uh, the, the, the geologist, his function is to find that iron ore, and then there'll be another expert using a different methodology to uh, find out if it's economically viable to mine that. So you, it requires very specific methodologies in all different areas of uh, human research, in sociology, in physical geography, political geography, political science. There are different methodologies which are used. So similarly, to say that understanding or belief in God is unscientific, this statement is in itself unscientific. Because there is a science of understanding God, it is called Bhagavad Tattva that is stated in the Srimad Bhagavatam. The topmost book of understanding God states that it is called Bhagavad Tattva the science of understanding the uh, tattvas, or the tattva means the thatness, that we can say the phenomena of God. So there, there are, there, there, there is a science of God, but we have to, we simply have to approach it with the appropriate technology or methodology. It is uh, unscientific to simply brush off, oh, there's no God, we can't accept that. It is not a reasonable uh, statement, but it is a dogma of certain modern scientists, widely accepted dogma, that God is a subject simply for sentimentalists. Unfortunately, it is thought as thus. Although this country has seen some of the modern Indians are unaware that this country has seen some of the most brilliant persons ever. Madhvacharya, Ramanujacharya, their intelligence, as is evident from their writings, is certainly, even from the point of view of intelligence, it's certainly on a, on a level, if not greater than that of Newton, Einstein, Hawkins, Galileo. They are extremely intelligent persons, but they concentrated their endeavors on understanding what is the most important subject, and in that way they were demonstrated more intelligence. That instead of trying to use their intelligence to understand what is going on in this world, they used their intelligence to understand what is going on beyond this world. And where, where do we fit in? What is our ultimate purpose of life? These are such intelligent persons. Their writings are in such complex Sanskrit that it's, 
it's very and their philosophical exegesis are such that it's very difficult for people in the modern age even to begin to understand it. Just like we, we know that Einstein he could only discuss his theories with hardly maybe two or three people in the world. And uh, they would disagree, that Bohr would, would disagree with him also, but at least he could discuss it. The formula E equals mc squared, every schoolboy knows it, but there's hardly a person in the world who can understand it. Such was the gift given to Einstein by God. The intelligence, where did it come from? By chance, but Einstein himself, towards the end of his life, said that after uh, all my life of research, I simply want to understand how God has created everything. So really intelligent persons, we find that they're interested with the really big questions. Most people are interested with, uh, are interested in simply how to get some money, live comfortably and watch TV. Not, not very elevated. Persons who are more intellectually developed, they may be interested in questions such as scientific questions, cultural questions, sociological questions, political questions. But those who are at the uh, highest level of thought, they think, what is, the, what is the ultimate purpose of life? Such persons are not necessarily the most educated. Sometimes persons who are even not very educated in the worldly sense, they have enough spiritual sense to ask the really important question of life, which is stated in uh, Brahma Sutra, Atato Brahma Jignasa. Brahma Sutra, this is the summary of also called Vedanta Sutra, which is the summary of the Upanishads, a summary of the Jnana section of the Veda. With, it begins, Atato Brahma Jitnasa. Now we should inquire into Brahma. What is the, what is spiritual reality? Atato. This, now, this is, what, what does this mean now? Different acharyas have commented. Some say that this means after having gone through all endeavors to enjoy this material world and having understood that there's nothing really here for us to enjoy. Our own spiritual master, Srila Prabhupada, said that this now means now having attained the human form of life, we have sufficient intelligence to inquire into the really important question, what is ultimate reality? This is the really important question. Human life means that we have the requisite intelligence to ask such questions. There are so many different forms of life. According to the Vedic literatures, there are 84 lakh species of life, quite precise. 
four life species, of which four lives are human. In the human form of life, one has the requisite intelligence to ask the most important question. What is the most important question? What is the purpose of life? This we should try to understand before we leave this human body, because by entering a non-human body, we no longer have the ability to ask such questions. This is the really important question. What are we doing here in this world? If we examine, we find that we are born and we die. In between, we struggle and we attempt to enjoy this world. But then, what's it all about? Is there no more to life than this? Vedic knowledge tells us, yes, certainly. There is much, much, much more to life than simply getting born, dying, and in between struggling to get a little meager happiness before suffering old age and death and going on to where we do not know. We may say, after death there is nothing, it is all finished. We may say like that, but we don't really know. People often ask us, well, how do you know that there is life after death? How do you know that there isn't life after death? If there is, and actually the most influential people in human history, namely Krishna, Ramanuja, Madhva, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, these are all the most influential people in history. They all say that yes, there is life after death and that this life is preparation for the next life. As is now the uh, understanding of karma has become uh, well accepted in the Western world and in English there's a saying, what goes around comes around. In other words, karma, you get what you or even in the Western countries, if someone say they they stub their toe while they're walking, they say, "Oh, that's my karma." So the uh, the most influential people in human history have all told us that this life is a preparation for the future. That we get what what happens after death is not that just. Nothing happens, but yes, life continues, and we shall continue according to how we prepare ourselves in this life. So, even if we say, well, you can't prove there's life after death, and when you say, well, you can't prove that there isn't life after death, but if you take it that all the greatest thinkers in history have said that there is life after death, and uh, if, if there's a if we take it as a, even a 50-50 chance, then if you if you say that if you don't prepare yourself for life after death, and you're wrong, there is life after death, then you really messed up your human life, isn't it? <laughs> but if there is life after death, and we prepare for it, then we'll be much better situated. The child may say, well, I don't want to go to school. Why don't I just play, enjoy myself now? 
And the parents will say, no, you have to prepare. Why? I just want to enjoy myself. No, you have to prepare yourself for the future. So all the great saintly persons who have influenced human society, in the greatest way they say, you have to prepare yourself for the future. And that's actually uh, reasonable to think that life has got a purpose. We see the whole universe and it's reasonable to think that there is a purpose to it more than it's simply that we have, we have come here by chance and we're just here to watch television until we die. Work hard and then go home and watch TV or maybe play table tennis or something. And that's all. And then you die. But it is more reasonable to presume that there is a purpose. And the great spiritual teachers teach us what that purpose is. In the Vedic literatures, uh, they tell us that in the greatest detail. Many persons ask us, well, how is it, you see, we, it seems pretty obvious that we're not born in India. We're coming from the Western countries. And then how have you taken up this? Uh, the answer is maybe, well, maybe you could say that's to a large degree due to our scientific education, which uh, on one hand gave us the inquiring attitude that why, why like this, why like that, and a systematic kind of education to see that things are going on very systematically. So then the question comes, then, all right, you've taught us biology and chemistry and physics and mathematics and sociology, but if we, you've taught us to examine all these different areas of human experience, but then what is the actual purpose of life? That is not taught in the school. You've taught us everything about uh, at least the basics of how things are going on in this world, but what is the purpose of it? So when we come to inquire about that, and then we also like to get systematic and scientific answers. If we go to the church, they'll tell us, well, it's like this, and why? Well, it's in the Bible, and why? Well, you just have to believe it. It's not very satisfying to be told, you just have to believe it. But then when we come to Bhagavad Gita and the Vedic literature, we're given much more information about who is God, why the universe is created, what is our function in it. Very detailed information. So we're attracted to that because it, it appeals to our scientific education. We want to know more details. If you just say, that, well, God created the universe and then he got tired. And, and who is God? And, and then they, when we ask these questions, they say, well, don't ask that. They say, but you taught us to ask so many questions, and now when we ask questions about the most important thing, you tell us not to ask. But then when we ask the knowers of the Vedic truth, they're called the rishis, those who are seers, they see the potency within the Vedic mantra. They can tell us exactly who is God. What is the meaning? God is not such a vague term. Everything is defined in the Vedic literature. Bhagavan, this term, it's not just simply vague. It has a specific meaning. Aishvarya-sya-samadrasya-virya-sya-yashasya-sriya-ha-gyanavairagya-yushya-vashannam-bhagat-kundana. 
Bhagavan means who is possessed of uh, unlimited transcendental qualities, full of all opulence, full of all power, full of all fame, beauty, knowledge and renunciation is the basic definition of Bhagavan. It's not simply a vague term. That is another mistake in, in modern religion. It's generally considered, well, God, you can just, whatever you like, you can think of God. Very unscientific. Every subject we approach very scientifically, geology, mathematics, history, very methodically. And when it comes to God, we just say, well, you just think whatever you like. That's not very scientific. Bhagavad Tattva Vigyana, it is stated in Srimad Bhagavatam, this is the scientific knowledge of the phenomena of God. Of course, God cannot be put under a microscope. He is under the microscope, but you won't find him under the microscope. You can look through the telescope, and God is, God is in the microcosm, God is in the macrocosm, He is the microcosm, He is the macrocosm, still He is aloof from everything. Krishna says, I am within everything and without everything. Everything is within me, but still I am aloof from everything. So God is everything and again He is not everything. So it seems like a contradiction. But how to understand this? By the highest spiritual understanding. By the highest spiritual methodology. It is not vague. Krishna taught Bhagavad Gita to give us specific understanding of reality at the deepest level. Unfortunately, people think that religion is just some sentimental or vague subject that you can think of in any way you like. But rather, we coming from the Western countries were attracted to Krishna consciousness as taught by Srila Prabhupada who himself was, in secular life, trained as a pharmacist. He was running a pharmaceutical company. He was one of the first manufacturers of Western pharmaceuticals in India, in his secular life. Uh, and then in his old age, he took sannyas and preached Krishna consciousness all over the world in a very systematic and scientific way. And the result of that what is the result? The result of, uh, of I guess uh, you're, you're taking the, the iron and, and again you process it and the result is steel sheets. So the result of taking to Krishna consciousness in a systematic manner is bliss, <laughs> which is not quantifiable. There's no blissometer, but it, but it can be personally experienced that the result is that one attains Krishna praying, love of Krishna. It is not quantifiable in a scientific, in, in a gross scientific manner, but it is the ultimate purpose of human life. If we examine everything we're doing, why do we do it? Ultimately we do it for happiness or out of a sense of duty. So the highest duty and the highest happiness is to love Krishna. It is not simply an empty sentiment. It is the uh, 
conclusion of all Vedic scientific knowledge that the jiva or atma is by constitution part and parcel of Krishna, who is supreme, the supreme transcendentally blissful person. He is Satchidanandamai. We are also Satchidanandamai. He is unlimitedly great and we are infinitesimal. So all these points are to be understood. This scientific education spurred us to go more deeply into the science of God. And another reason is that because the scientific education we were given was ultimately atheistic, because they were not able, they, they, they just neglected, at best neglected, the really important question of what is the purpose of life, who is God, what is our relationship with Him. Therefore, uh, we were dissatisfied with the whole materialistic upbringing that we have. If we go to the Western countries, especially America and Germany, these countries, you'll find very high level of material development. The roads are all very smooth, and the cars in, in Germany, maybe half the cars are Mercedes-Benz or BMW, which are in other parts of the world considered very prestigious, but most Germans drive these very expensive and very good cars, actually, very good cars. And very, very high level of technological efficiency. Of course, in America, they mostly put the door, the light switch behind the door, which is stupid. I can never understand why they did that. But uh, in general, very high level of technological efficiency. Very, uh, everything set up for materially very comfortable and should be enjoyable life. But at the same time, you find so many people are committing suicide. And, there's so many social problems. So being brought up in such a, a technologically advanced but spiritually nowhere society, it led us to think that well, there must be more to life than this. We have such technological advancement and there's so many machines for doing so many different things, but still we find People are not happy. No one's happy. Everyone's full of anxiety. Why is that? Why is it that despite so much technological advancement, everyone is so frustrated? You don't need to be a PhD to see that. Anyone can see. People in general are very frustrated. Basic human happiness is far from most people of the, in the modern Western world. Why? Asking these questions brought us to find out Krishna Consciousness. The Krishna Consciousness gives us direct experience of the soul and the soul's relationship with Krishna. Not in a sentimental way, but a very practical way. This chanting of Hare Krishna, it appeals to the directly to the needs of the soul. Modern society is 
try to fulfill the needs of the body and maybe of the mind, but not of the soul. Chanting Hare Krishna fulfills the need of the soul to come in contact with Krishna, with the, uh, the very essence of our being is to be in relationship with Krishna. We cannot be satisfied without Krishna. We directly experience that by chanting Hare Krishna. And because we have an intellectual need to understand why we are doing what we are doing, therefore Krishna is given the Vedic literature to explain who he is, who we are, what is our relationship with him, why material life is unsatisfying, and how we can be fully satisfied in relationship with Krishna. So that is a brief introduction to Krishna consciousness and why we are taking to it and why we are asking you to also take to it very seriously. Because it is in your own best interest to do so. Even theoretically, if, if we say that, well, uh, I'm an atheist. I don't accept that there's life after death. Alright, so let's take that theoretically then. Uh, my aim of life is to be happy. Just be happy here now. So we say, even then you should take to Krishna consciousness. Because we are Christian, we are taken to Krishna consciousness and we are very happy. Probably more so than those who are uh, simply interested in watching TV, playing computer games and whatever else materialistic people do to try to make themselves happy. We are happy now. So why not take to Krishna consciousness? And if it is true that there is a life after death, of course we ourselves are not in any doubt about this, but for those who may be in doubt about it, if it is true that there is life after death and you don't take to Krishna consciousness, then you're really in for a lot of trouble after death. And if it is true, and you do take to Krishna consciousness, then you'll be happy now, and you'll be happy after death also. So either way, you're not the loser. If you want to be happy now, and you think that, well, after death everything is finished, then take to Krishna consciousness anyway, you'll be happy. And if it's, if it's true that there is life after death, and it's actually very intelligent to consider that it is so, and then you get the reward of practicing Krishna consciousness. But, if you don't take to Krishna consciousness, and what the Vedic literature says is correct, and you're really in a lot of trouble. Modern uh, medicine speaks of terminal restlessness syndrome. That means people who are on the verge of death, they often start screaming or hiding themselves under the bed sheets. And sometimes they say, call the police, there are some persons coming who are trying to attack me. And they often, they say that they see people or, or some beings hovering around their bed who have very horrible features, who start to drag them away. It's called terminal restlessness syndrome. There's a medical name for it. And they don't take it very seriously. Dying people, it happens to them all the time. But this is described in the Srimad Bhagavatam 
These are the Yamadutas coming together, the messengers of Yamaraj. So modern science, modern medicine, uh, indirectly recognizes the descriptions of Srimad Bhagavatam. But they say, oh, it's just, it's some syndrome. It's just a psychological syndrome. The people become afraid and therefore they try to hide themselves under the bed sheets or whatever. <laughs> they don't recognize the Srimad Bhagavatam already taught about this thousands of years ago. But it's not simply a psychological syndrome. It's a fact that the messengers of Yamaraj come to take sinful persons who have not practiced Krishna consciousness. So, you should consider this very seriously. There's lots of scientific knowledge in the Vedic literature. There's a description many thousands of years before sonography, there's a description, exact description of how pregnancy takes place, how the uh, seminar mixes with the uh, mixes with the ovum in the, and then the child starts to form in the womb what the, how the embryo first starts to form what it looks like after seven days uh, after so many days the limbs start to form and then the, the whole bodily shape is fully defined complete scientific description the description of all the planets in our solar system are given in the Bhagavatam. Of course, you may say that Pluto isn't described, but then Pluto isn't really a planet anyway. <laughs> According, it's too small and it's just a bunch of rocks which are not really, uh, they're not really a solidified planet. They're just held to, they're not, they could break up at any time. So, a description of the planets are given, and uh, Jyotish is an important science up to the present day in, in Hinduism, uh, or among Hindus. Now we may say, well, that's just some kind of, uh, some kind of non-scientific uh, field, how can we call it? astrology, scientific. But astrology is based on astronomy. So the, the ancient Vedic rishis, they had knowledge of the movements of the planets. They, they would predict the coming of comets, for instance. And they could tell, they would calculate months in advance what time the sun will rise at any given point on the planet. They could do this because they had scientific knowledge of astronomy, based on Vedic knowledge. So even in the mundane sphere, the Vedas gives us so much knowledge of different topics which has been found out by research to some extent in modern science, but the knowledge is already there in the Vedic literature. So even on the mundane platform, Vedic knowledge is certainly scientific. And therefore, it inspires confidence in us that when it talks, when it speaks of subjects uh, that are concerned with the most subtle level of existence, namely the soul, that it's also very scientific. 
scientifically speaking, the best thing we can do with our life is to understand Krishna and chant Hare Krishna and prepare our soul to go to Krishna. This is our proposition to all of you technologists and scientists that the best technology is to understand the difference between the soul and the body and to act on that understanding to make the best use of our human life to fulfill the actual purpose of human life. Having said that, I'll ask for any questions or comments about this from your good service. Hare Krishna. If anyone would like to say anything, please do so. We have Dr. Santoshia. Wait, are, are you specializing in anything? No, you are, you are doing your MBBS, right? Did they teach you about that? Terminal restlessness syndrome? You didn't get that, huh? I got that from the internet. That uh, one of our devotees, there. That her father was dying, and uh, the nurse told her that maybe maybe the doctors are not trained so much to do that. Maybe the nurses more. The nurses they're trained how to deal with this, or rather not deal with it. They just ignore it. It's just, okay, just you know, what can you do? They're dying. <laughs> Any comments, questions, protests? Well, if there's no questions, I can conclude that either you agree with everything I said, or you thought it was such a bunch of rubbish that you don't think it's even worth discussing any further. But if you thought, ah, there's a question. Not that I understand Bhagavad Gita or I have read um, uh, much of philosophies that you are talking about, but when you talk about Bhagavan, Bhagavad Tottar, this understanding the word are easy because of my background. Because but of language, point, because even of language. Because of the language. You are from Orissa? I am from Orissa. Actually, I am from Bengal. Ah. Settled in Orissa. I, I could guess by your accent. I travel by the Yeah. Now, one of the things. Because in Tamil, all these words, were, in other Indian languages, Bhagavad Tattva, especially if one's. From, in Orissa, there's still quite a lot of religious culture going it's on. Hindi, Assam, Bengali. Yeah, 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 in most languages. In Tamil, maybe not so Yeah, so Bhagavad Gita, these are known words in most yeah, Indian languages. Words. 
And Especially uh, those who are more religiously inclined. And it gives me a feeling that I could understand much of the things that you are talking. Hmm. May not have got into the gist, but I can understand what you are talking and I appreciate that. Hmm. But uh, Swamiji, what is your explanation about uh, one of the things that is, uh, Krishna has told in Gita? Sarva Dharma Paritya Mahametam Saranam Raja. Alright. It appears uh, that that is the final, according to Sri Aurobindo also he has told that this is one of the gist of Gita. Can you explain that? Yeah. Uh, regarding your understanding of Bhagavad Gita, I would say that in India, there is a, um, in Hindu families, those who are more than nominally Hindu, those who are still somewhat religious, it's not all families. I mean, in Delhi especially, if you, in many Hindu homes you'll go in, and only by the name on the signboard you can understand they're Hindu. Because if you go in the home, there's no Gita, there's no picture of Krishna, absolutely nothing religious whatsoever. But uh, in many Hindu families in Orissa, people still tend to be religious. So there's a general sympathy towards them. But there is what is lacking in modern Hindu society is systematic education in Bhagavad Tattva Vigyana. And therefore people have many different ideas and often very wrong ideas actually if we, step, if we see according to Vedchastra of or unscientific ideas of actually what is Bhagavad Tattva. Therefore, as I, as I was saying, people, they tend to think, well, you can think whatever you like about what is God. People are not trained. This training is required. If this training is there, then we can begin to understand what is the meaning of Sarvathaman Paritka Jagnami Kamsharanam Krishna says, abandon all varieties of dharma and simply take shelter in me. Whereas earlier in Gita, Krishna says, Dharma samsthapana artaya sambhavana I come to establish Dharma. In every yuga, I come to establish Dharma. But then he says, to give up all Dharma. The ultimate is to give up all Dharma and simply surrender to me. So it requires quite some depth of understanding to understand this. That what is Dharma? Is a very big question. Dharma can be understood at basically two levels. There is sadharam dharma, or the dharma which is connected with our bodily connect situation in the world at the present time. Traditionally, this went on, went on under the varasham dharma. Krishna states in Bhagavad Gita, chatur vanyam vayashrishtam. Guna Karma Vibhagashaha, the four Varnas, uh, they were Brahmana, Chatriya, Vaishya, Shudra. They were created by me according to Guna and Karma, not according to Janma. There's also Ashram Dharma, Brahmacharya, Grihastha, Varnaprastha, Sanyas. So one is required to act within Varnashram 
for the sake of transcending Vanashram Dharma and understanding what is Atma Dharma. The Vanashram, to be a Brahmana, Kshatriya, to be a whatever, Sanyasi, that only pertains to the body which is temporary. And even sometimes one may, of course, one will change from Brahmacharya to Grihastha to Vanapastha to Sanyasi. And even within this life there are instances of Kshatriya such as Vishvamitra changing to become a Brahmana. So these, these designations are temporary dharmas, but nevertheless they are important because they help us to live in this world in such a way that we can understand the ultimate dharma, which is Atma Dharma. So Atma Dharma means to take shelter of Krishna. Therefore Krishna says, Sarvadhaman, Sarvadhaman Parikthaja, Mame Kamsha Krishna comes to establish Vanashram Dharma so that people may be situated peacefully according to their psychophysical situation so that they may inquire atato brahma jignasa into the ultimate truth which is to understand that I am not a brahmana, shatra, vaisha, shudra but I am atma, I am eternal part and parcel of Krishna, I am his eternal servant. So there are levels, what Krishna speaks in Bhagavad Gita, there are different levels but the ultimate level at the end he says, Shinu made Paramambacha. Now you hear what is my topmost instruction, which is Mandana Bhavamadhatta, Madhyaji, Mamanasu, Mame Vaishasi Satyanti, Pitijani Priyasu, Sarvadhaman Paritpatya, Mame Kamsharamandaja. Always think of me, become my devotee, worship me, bow down before me. In this way you will come to me. I promise you this because you are my very dear friend. Abandon all varieties of dharma and simply take shelter in me, simply surrender to me. Do you have Bhagavad Gita as it is? Because we have distributed several million copies throughout the world of this Bhagavad Gita as it is. It's widely accepted as the definitive edition throughout the world. Uh, we have copies there. If you don't have that book, then please have. I would think that, that it practically it's the duty of every educated Hindu to have this book in his home, even if you have other editions of Gita. Because this Gita, was, this edition we are finding is very effective. It, it fulfills the purpose of Gita because by reading this, so many people have taken up Krishna's instruction. Mangana Bhavanadhatta. Think of me and become my devotee. So we, we can understand that Krishna Shakti is within this particular edition because it's not simply some pundit's mental uh, ramblings about what he thinks is in Gita, but it is actually Bhagavad Gita as it is. It has the same potency that Krishna spoke to Arjun with. It comes through in this edition because the commentator is a pure devotee of Krishna on the same level of our, as Arjuna. Fully, he's actually taken 
up in his life. So this edition of Bhagavad Gita is very powerful. It has full Krishna Shakti. So every uh, educated Hindu should have this book in his home. It's your duty to have that for yourself and to give your, your, your children the proper spiritual education. The parents are so much concerned how to arrange for their children roti, kapra, matan, education, all these things. But the highest education is to give spiritual education. That is the real duty of parents. So we have copies here of Bhagavad Gita as it is, and many books uh, to which give more information about uh, Bhagavad Gita as it is. Of course, it's not really the topic of one day, one session. So, I would suggest that for those of you who are interested to learn more about this wonderful culture of Bhakti Yoga that's captured the minds of people all over the world, people who are uh, taking to Krishna consciousness and finding great peace and satisfaction in this very practical method of Bhakti Yoga. So we, we suggest that there may be some regular programs going on here at the steel plant that you can gradually be introduced to all these topics of Krishna consciousness and you'll be fully satisfied spiritually, intellectually, even uh, gastronomically. <laughs> Krishna Prasada is the best food in the universe. It's better than any McDonald's or millions of times better. It fully it satisfies not only the palate, but Krishna Prasadam satisfies the soul. We're going to give a practical demonstration of that just in a few minutes' time. So I would suggest that uh, now you all take this Bhagavad Gita as it is, and if you don't have that, uh, you should take it. If you do, then we have other books which are very useful, The Science of Self-Realization, and that uh, we can follow this up with some seminars going into these topics more deeply. Uh, are there any more questions, comments? Today is Durga Puja, big festival for Bengalis and Oriya people especially. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, that area especially is a big yeah. Have you read this book uh, written by Neil Donald Walsh? That by who? Conversation with God. By who? Neil Donald Walsh. I, I, I never heard his name, so I'm sure I haven't read the book. Uh, actually, he is not a. Uh, the book, uh, as I have read it, it is like an inspiration for the author who is advocate by nature, by, pro, by profession and writes the book. In that book, one of the things that I read and must be true for every religion and every order of religion that he is telling that you must always ask yourself what you are and find out what you are going to do. 
Of course, we read the conversation with God, Krishna and Arjuna, in which Krishna directly tells us. So, I mean, that information is there in Bhagavad Gita. And the, the second thing is that, uh, like uh, Sri Aurobindo, he has talked about the Atimanasa Chaitana, the higher level of consciousness, Atimanasa Chaitana, where he says that human beings are uniquely positioned because they have the mind to think. And because of this proper, this ability to think, they can even uh, shorten their, the future and they can go to the consciousness of the Lord's consciousness directly. So there may not be a karmic theory of many, but may not be necessary once you go there. Do you agree yeah. with it? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, the same thing that human life is meant for God-realization and if we take up the process of God-realization as given by Krishna and Bhagavad Gita then uh, we should come out of the repetition of birth and death and go to Krishna. One thing we'll find uh, in Srila Prabhupada's books one wonderful thing in his teachings that he's able to give these actually very deep teachings of Vedic knowledge to people all over the world, Krishna has inspired him to present these teachings in, a, in an essential and very straightforward and simple manner. That all these very abstruse truths, he's presented them in just taking the essence and without compromising it, he's presented in such a way that uh, even people like ourselves who are not coming from background as yourselves, we're able to pick these things up and apply them in our lives practically. It's very practical. It's not just intellectual. It's certainly very intellectually satisfying, but it's satisfying on all levels. It satisfies ultimately the soul. So, I was saying it's very practical and the, uh, the practical process of God-realization in Kali Yoga is Haryan Nama, Haryan Nama, Haryan Nama, Eva Kevalam, Kalo Nastuva, 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 Gatilam Yata, as stated in Bihad Narayana Purana. In Kali Yuga, there is no other way, no other way, no other way to attain the ultimate destination but to chant the name of Hari, chant the name of Hari, chant the name of Hari. So, we can practically do this now by chanting the Hare Krishna mantra and we invite you all to join in with us and experience the bliss 